Okay, let's say you're in the wealth management space and you want to market to women. Sounds like a good idea, right? Until you consider that there are old women, young women, boomer women, millennial women, Gen Z women, or women who drive Lamborghinis, an affinity group which also includes men. It's a very thorny question to figure out exactly how to come at today's consumer in an age when segmentation is now the rule. And today on Dave and Darm Demystify, we have April Rudin. She's the founder and CEO of the global wealth marketing firm, The Rudin Group in New York City. To give us some answers, some common sense, and a good dose of humor surrounding the issue of how wealth managers and consumers can connect. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody back to the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. And this week we have a very special guest, April Rudin from the Rudin Group, CEO. And now one of our sisters of our big family. Um, <laughs> and the topic that we're going to demystify this week is very much around wealth management. And this is a space that everyone talks about, that wealth is about relationships and about people and you and you know what's going to happen with the digital side of things so that's really what we're going to try and demystify and who better than the world expert april rudin to bring in and talk about it april would you like to tell our audience a little bit about yourself please well first let me begin with my family tree my new brothers david and darm and of course i'm your little sister right let's get that straight right off <laughs> yeah so i founded my firm in 2008 against sort of a crisis here in the US, but an opportunity that I saw the intersection of three forces. The first one being the transference of wealth. The second one being the intersection, right, of millennial passions and preferences. And the third being technology, whether it was MarTech, FinTech, WealthTech, being a real opportunity for wealth management firms and those in the community to really change up their marketing and branding, because what I saw was largely cliched, whether in the copy, like we put clients' interests first, which doesn't resonate, we're a fiduciary, like who cares, and a picture of a couple walking on a beach and a lighthouse and a yacht and stock images, really, that didn't differentiate anyone's brand. So that was my real motivation, and I found that it was real white space in 2008, because it was in disruption. And I see the same opportunity, if not even greater now in 2021. I was just about to say, there's still lighthouses and yachts and couples turning up. So I'm sure some companies have kind of moved on, but it doesn't feel like the industry's massively moved on at all. And when you say now there's still an opportunity, is there an extra push because of this pandemic side of things or what? 
Obviously, we can't say too much good about the pandemic, but what we can say in wealth management is that there's been a real silver lining. There's a meme that I love that asks, you know, who's driving digital transformation at your organization? Is it the CTO, the CIO, or COVID-19? And of course, it's COVID-19, particularly for wealth management, which has been the slowest of financial services to move to digital. I think what people have found is that we can do it and we can do it really well and there's no going back. So that's what I mean about being an opportunity to sort of millennialize their brand, figure out what their offering should be develop deeper relationships with clients because it's not just about investment advice anymore. So it's been a real sea change in 2020 and 2021. Was it just out of necessity that people start to move towards digital or are they really saying, well, okay, it was done out of necessity, but actually I'm not going back because this way is better. Now, what's the feedback now? I mean, how are they dealing with their wealth managers digitally? I think it's a little of both. The average age of a financial advisor, I'll give you another stat that's important to think about, is 60 plus. Yes. So not that I'm discriminating against older people because I'm certainly not. It turns out also on the flip side that the highest expectation for digital is among older users, right? So Digital adoption is really strong among ultra high net worth baby boomers. So it's not just millennials. And I think firms have finally gotten the push right from the wealth manager side and the firm side that digital works and we can do it. And now that we have this foundation, Darm, what can we do to really make that better? And that, of course, reflects also back on their brand. And then how do we communicate that to clients? I find that fascinating. I thought the push was really coming from the millennials. That's what we kind of hear in the fintech news, right? Is all about the millennials changing it. They were born with the internet and with the smartphone. But it's fascinating that you're saying it's actually driven by the older generation. Yes. It's driven by the older generation. So that's one, let's call it like a myth that we're going to bust. And the second one would be It's ultra high net worth because they have complexities, right, that digital can really help in terms of portfolio consolidation, reporting, all of these things that digital really drives. And why? Because ultra high net worth baby boomers don't have a smartphone or don't know anything about digital. That's another myth. Like, that's not really true. You mentioned smartphones. I mean, again, it's something which I find fascinating is just how little attention many wealth managers have paid to things like smartphone apps and dealing with their customers through the channel. And yet everything, everything we see is that the sort of smartphone is driving key relationships. And actually, it's such a personal medium. People have very high expectations out of it. I mean, it's very surprising that people haven't done more with Boba. I sort of wonder if that's one of the big emerging trends that we're going to see is a lot more focus around mobile. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, none of us are mobile now. I don't have to tell the two of you. Mobile was really good up until 2020. But of course, again, reemerge. I think it's the idea that ultra high net worth particularly are mobile and global, right? So why wouldn't they be using a smartphone? And advisors themselves, of course, have smartphones. But I think they haven't brought it over into their work life. 
And perhaps that's been due to compliance or regulatory concerns. But I think even that's going away if you think about all of the benefits of regtech. And the whole regtech world is kind of fascinating in terms of the opportunities to kind of know more about your customers, monitor customers, help customers, you know, onboard customers. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to see the impact that has had. You're the expert. I mean, I know not a huge amount about the wealth management community, but what I guess I'm not seeing is people tying all of this up together into sort of coherent strategies. Am I wrong about that? You're perfectly right about that. I think people have been tied up into this idea of segmentation, like apps are for millennials or products for women look like pink or look like this right here's what women need. And I think a smarter and broader strategy is these are all the different entry points that we can offer and letting people choose rather than over segmenting and creating products for segments, because certainly not all millennials are alike, right? You know, it sort of reminds me since it's Lunar New Year of the Chinese horoscope, like not everyone born in a particular year could have the same preferences and characteristics, but still banks and wealth management firms continue to over segment and say, here's what millennials want. I mean, my own two children are really different with what they want, right? One of them prefers to speak to an advisor. When they graduated college, I sent them both to financial advisor and my older son texted me, this guy wants me to use a robo advisor and I don't know anything about investing. (laughs) When you talk about these different entry points, are you kind of alluding to, you know, more than just an app and things like social media channels like Insta or, you know, Clubhouse now, et cetera? I mean, what's the uptake on the social media side of things? So there's two things about social media that I think people need to pay attention to. One is the idea of talking and the idea of listening being really important. And I published a blog on that and it had to do with what's going on on Reddit which is, yeah, sort of under the current. So for most firms, they're just right now adopting social media as a channel to use for marketing. But many times it's just at the corporate brand level. And it's really hard to interact with content that's put out by a global bank, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, I think so much of social media has ended up in the corporate affairs department. And as you say, if I'm a kind of customer, I don't want to know what the policy on X, Y, and Z is. I just want to know how to do more with my money, you know, and I would expect to see content around that. It's fascinating. Right. And so that's starting like in the financial literacy, but I guess I would even take it a step further about what we know about personal brands, right? What you really want to know is, Who is my banker? Who is my advisor? Who are these people that I've entrusted with my money? Just the way you guys were talking about your own personal connections. You know, I met Dharm at a conference, right? And I know certain things about him and that forms our basis of our relationship, right? Rather than just around business. So I think that's the opportunity that big brands need to think about how to push that social media down And there's certainly a lot of platforms now. It's called social selling. How do you connect the brands with the people? 
right? How do Darm and I get to know each other? And maybe it's because we're talking about football first, and it's nothing to do with investing. And that's the basis of our relationship. I completely agree. Absolutely do agree. But I can see if I was the average wealth management firm or the average bank, I'd be going, oh my God, this is going to be quite a tough thing to do. So how could they get started? Well, hire us, but beyond... (laughs) Yes. That's our first plug, do you (laughs) realise? But I think it's really going outside in because these are industry learnings, right? It's not true of one firm, but it's how do you take best practices across an industry and bring them into your firm? Because it's the same situation regardless of who you are, but it's how you do it. And so I think... That's one thing. And there are a lot of tech platforms out there that, again, RegTech plays right into that as well. How do you monitor what people are posting on social media? How do you train them to do it not only in a safe or you know compliant way, but also in a compelling way? How do you start relationships? And that's the idea of social selling, right? I've been focusing a little bit on the property sector and I'm starting to see like realtors or estate agents, we call them, that are on Insta, but showing what they do in their personal lives, because that's actually what the local people there will know them for, right? He's the guy that runs the kids' football team. He's the guy that does the charity marathons, da-da-da-da-da. And I started to see what you're talking about now. So, yeah, that's fascinating. Those are the connection points that people want. Many times people talk about like also institutional marketing, but institutions are made up of people. And so it's more today about your personal brand and your personal relationships. And all of that is portable, right? That's what you take along with you. So building your online brand has never been more important than it is now and will continue to be. You know, I guess the industry is driven by relationship management. So actually understanding more about your relationship manager is never going to be a bad thing. I mean, I sort of think about some of the relationships I've got or the relationship managers I've got, and I'd be fascinated to know more about them. And that can help with things like trust. So it's a really interesting, interesting point, which I hadn't really thought about. There's a complexity there because you have to get people writing good content. You have to sort of teach them about their personal brands. And we're doing some benchmarking on retail banks at the moment around social media. And that's interesting because you see some of the big banks like Barclays, they don't post on things like Facebook. You know, they've got 600,000 followers and they're just not posting on Facebook for whatever reason, and you end up going, well, that's just kind of crazy, isn't it? Because there's so many opportunities to build relationships there, or, you know, even if they got an employee to do something, I mean, it would be something, you know. I think the gap between the idea and actually getting on and doing it is quite a big one, but a very necessary one, isn't it? Exactly. There was, you know, in the olden days, like I said, I founded my firm almost 13 years ago now. So in the past, people thought about Facebook as being purely personal, LinkedIn as being business. But, you know, what we've seen today is that real blurring, right, between personal and professional. And that's really the inflection point that these banks can really leverage. And then that's where the personal brands, I mean, look at the life cycle events that you can see on Facebook. And those are inflection points where people would hire a new advisor, make a new allocation, 
right? Those are things that you'd want to know about. Just had a baby, just got married. Those are all really good points of contact. And Facebook can be a great platform for that. We can't have a conversation about wealth and not talk about robot advisors or robot advisors, chatbots, etc. What's the role of that kind of technology in wealth or isn't there? So I think just that whole term robo-advisor was probably developed by some really scared wealth managers. I'm going to be replaced by a robot. And, you know, I think we all know that that's not true. But there's certainly a place, right, for self-directed investing. But even that can be fraught, as we've seen with Robinhood of late and some other things, right? So it's really, how do you as a global bank or how do you as an enterprise have those different entry points as I was talking about before? So I think the bigger firms have gotten away from we build it here mentality. We must build it here. So we see a lot more partnerships between banks and robos, right, as being part of their offering. And that's what will continue. So people might even make an allocation for some money that they want to be self-directed, you know, maybe a larger portion of their money that they want managed by a person. But I think it's the flexibility of having all these different entry points instead of driving to one offering, but let the people choose what they want. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice, I think. I think is absolutely right. I mean, one thing that I was kind of interested in, I mean, you mentioned GameStop and Reddit. Things like that open people's minds to two things like investments. And then you've got crypto and all this other stuff, which is, I guess, opening people's minds up to possibilities in a way that nothing has done before. And so one of the things I sort of wonder is whether the world of wealth management is going to become more interesting from a product point of view, but for people with not so much money. So for example, if you're ultra high net worth, you have access to things like family office and investments within family offices. But do you think that things like family office will find their way down into people with not so much money and a sort of broader audience because of the way technology and fractional trading and all the other bits and pieces are kind of coming in. It seems like we want to head towards a world where we just leave the cash on the table and whoever has to take a bit can take a bit. But I still am wary of stuff like that. Lots of other people are too. Yeah, so that's where we need more guardrails around it, more financial literacy and so on, just to help people understand what the ramifications might be of a bad investment or just piling on or just reading something on Reddit or the herd mentality, right? That doesn't really work. Sure. I mean, you started with this thing about segmentation, right? And you know that not all the profiles are the same. I mean, I've been talking up in the retail banking space and in corporate banking, the resegmentation of banking. Right, because I don't think it's been talked about enough. So I'm doing the talking for everybody. <laughs> but really, it's the fact that, you know, every bank before was focused around a geographic customer audience, and then they chose a segment of the general person or businesses or a bit of both, right? And now we're seeing digital models which are resegmenting banks. I'm focused as a business just on contractors, or I'm focused as a bank just on brand new parents. I'm focused as a bank just on landlords, right? So that's what I call the resegmentation of banking because 
even those are small segments, digital gives you a massive reach, right? So you're not geographically constrained. And now you can resegment to that specific audience, providing them a breadth of services that fulfills deeper customer journeys, right? Yes, because what you're touting, what you know about that industry, right? Exactly. So are we seeing anything like that in wealth, do you think, or not? No, I think people are still at that first segmentation phase, which is we're going to target women, even though women represent 51% of the population. Women, I'm just here to say in case it didn't come clear, women are not a niche. You know, you guys look old enough to know that not all women are the same. I'm guessing you've had experience with that in your lives. (laughs) (laughs) That's a topic for a different show. So I have a question in my mind around brands that think like women are a niche, but understanding more about needs, right, or behaviors could be a better segmentation, right? Or industries. If you're in this industry, you have a cash flow problem because of the way you're paid as a doctor, let's say. And so that generates products or services that you would want your advisor to be able to know about, perhaps lending. Things like school fees, like in this country, if you decide to send your kids to private school, you then set yourself up with a massive liability over the course of their life. And yet there isn't anybody out in the kind of wealth management industry who are going, well, actually, we'll build a product around school fees. And actually, if you thought about it, you could create a really nice product, a bond or something like that, which you put money into it and that pays for your kids' education over time or whatever it is. So I think to Dan's point and to your point, you know, people are still in this sort of level one segmentation, not thinking about things from a kind of need or a behavioral point of view the other thing which i always puzzle over is things like risk you know if you do a risk calculation then it will say well dave you're a cautious investor but i know for a fact i'm a cautious investor for sort of i don't know 70 percent of my assets but the other 30 percent, i have completely different views on you know so i think this is where technology could be a lot more useful in terms of defining risk as something which is slightly more measurable yeah absolutely well we do have that here in the us there are different risk numbers different products that like a risk lies which will establish your risk number so that advisors can use that and we do have something called a 529, which is a saving program that people can put into place for college. Some of these have integrations, but they feel a little bit still like point solutions. And then the other thing in terms of wealth management that's really a trend or important to consider is the fact that people are not really so focused in on just investment advice, but more on holistic goals-based investing. And that's been a real sea change because many advisors are paid on assets under management, but yet their clients are really interested in more holistic advice. And particularly pandemic has driven that. So about real estate, about school, about health insurance, about legacy, right? All of these things. My goal is to be able to send my child to a private college or whatever that might be. So we have a greater focus in on goals-based investing than that narrow view of my portfolio as being the only place that you can provide value. 
Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, listen, that's been a really, really insightful, well, it's just over 20 minutes, but a really insightful time. Thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, we'd love to have you back at some other time and we can um, carry on this discussion. So thank you so much for that. Thanks to both of you. Yes, great conversation. Thank you so much, April. Excellent. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Dan Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.